Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. We're in John chapter 6, if you want to turn there, and we are following the life and ministry of Christ in the Gospel of John. And uh, we just saw Jesus feed a multitude of anywhere from 15 to 25,000 people. And there is a crowd that is infatuated with Jesus. John chapter 6 verse 2 told us that a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So you have this healing at the pool of Bethesda and all of these other healings. And pretty soon people are pretty excited about universal health care in Jesus, you know, the Jesus plan. They're signing up for the gold package. They're following Jesus everywhere. And now they want to make him king after the feeding of the 5,000. And they're chasing him from town to town. Literally, it talks about them running out of the towns. They're chasing him in our story today across the Sea of Galilee. But... If you jump ahead a bit in John chapter 6, what you see is that this is really about to become a heartbreaking moment in the life and ministry and the story of Jesus Christ. We see the same people, the multitude that was captivated with Jesus later in chapter 6, now walking away from him, rejecting him. And this chapter is going to unveil a drastic shift in mood as Christ brings them face to face with his real message, with who he is really claiming to be and what that demands of them. So let's jump into chapter 6 in our section. We're going to try to go a little bit farther even than than, uh, what Kent read this morning. I'm hoping we get all the way through verse 34. So hold your breath, buckle up. I'll talk fast, you listen fast. Some of you know I always talk fast. So let's let's, uh, pick up verse 15 from last week, John 6, 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And again, the people liked Jesus' healings. They liked the the free meals. They're willing to accept Jesus as king as long as the platform that he ran on was meeting their materialistic needs and uh, maybe throw in an uprising against the Romans, you know, overthrow the Romans. And, And... At this point, they're prepared to force this on Jesus if they need to in order to make him the political Messiah that they desire. But we know that this is not Christ's plan. This is not the foreordained plan of God. It's not the purpose for his coming. We also know that there will be a messianic kingdom. Christ is a king. There is a coming literal, physical, earthly kingdom. But what they're not understanding at this point is that even that literal, earthly kingdom has a spiritual foundation. We can go back to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, where God tells Israel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And this is the precursor to the kingdom, that that hearts would be changed. In Jeremiah 31, the, the promise of the new covenant says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God, through Jeremiah, is prophesying the national salvation of the people of Israel and the coming of the kingdom, but it comes as hearts are transformed one at a time until the entire nation is saved, and then the kingdom comes. So there is this coming kingdom, but first there must be repentance. First there has to be inner change. And we've seen this already in the Gospel of John. Do you remember what John told Nicodemus? John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. And frankly, there's a, there's a hidden blessing, even in John chapter 6, in all of this rejection of Christ that's coming, a rejection of the offer of the kingdom that Christ makes to his people Israel, because it opens the door for the salvation of Gentiles, and it leads to the crucifixion of Christ as the provision for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Jesus is refusing to yield to this kind of political pressure that they're putting on him. He withdraws from the crowd, and so we come to this infamous, this miraculous walking on the water. There's a famous saying by the old Puritan John Flavel, and he says, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. This is a, a lesson that I want us to draw and to focus on, among other lessons here from this fifth miracle in the Gospel of John. That when we are at our most desperate, God may be seeking an incredible opportunity. When we are in the storm, when we can't see our way through, when we're barely treading water, God may be working for our good and for His glory. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost fit on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. And I pray this morning that this fifth sign miracle that John records in his gospel will remind us of the power of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, of God in our lives, even in difficulty. This is a miracle that points to Jesus' deity. As you look again in verses 16 to 21, Jesus, as he walks on the water and calms the sea and supernaturally conveys the disciples to their destination, is showing again his power over nature. And it's good to note that Matthew and Mark tell us that as Jesus sent the disciples away to go across the lake on their own, he went to the mountain to pray. And Christ is making a priority of prayer. Getting away to pray, one of the most difficult passages for me in Scripture are those passages of Scripture which say, Jesus got up early in the morning and went to pray. Would that there were passages that said Jesus stayed up late at night and went to pray. 
Although I guess really this is kind of one of them. It's coming towards evening at least, right? But we have these excuses for our lax prayer life, right? Oh, I'm, I'm just so busy. I'm so tired. You know, I try to pray, fall asleep, you know, whatever. But then we look at passages like this and we see the pace that Christ is keeping. I just imagine how exhausted Christ must be in his humanity. And yet he goes to pray. I'm reminded of a, a Bible college professor who was kind of known for his output, for, for how many classes he taught and how much he wrote and how scholarly he was, but also known for the two hours of, prayer, uh, the two hours of, of private prayer that he spent every morning. And a, a student came to him and said, Professor, how do, you, how do you do it? You're so busy. How do you pray so much? And his answer was, how do you not? <laughs> you know, in, in his mind, the time that he spent in prayer wasn't something that took away or, or that lessened his effectiveness or his ability to do other things. It was what empowered him to do all that he did. And he couldn't imagine doing it without the time in fellowship and prayer with the Lord. So Christ sends the disciples to cross the lake as he goes to pray. They leave shortly before sunset possibly waiting for Jesus to join them at some point. Maybe Christ had intended to, to, to meet up, but didn't tell them when or where. We know now when and where he planned to meet them. But at any rate, they leave the shore without him to row across the lake. And the, the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, surrounded by 3,000-foot-high mountains around. And so the valley kind of acts as a funnel for the strong winds of the Mediterranean. And the wind comes in and it causes these sudden storms. And so in our story this morning, we're seeing this wind is howling and the water is becoming rough and the ship is, is being tossed around. And remember that you know, the, the men on this boat are no strangers. Like they know this lake, they know the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. Several of them have made a living fishing here. So for them to be concerned, it must have been a pretty impressive storm. Remember that Mark 4 tells us that before this event in John chapter 6, Jesus had already been with them in another storm on the Sea of Galilee. This time he was, he was in the boat. And what did he do on that occasion? He stood up in the middle of the storm and calmed the sea with his words. But this time Jesus is not in the boat, right? Maybe one of the disciples said, somebody wake Jesus up. Oh, Jesus is not here. We're on our own, right? And so Mark says that in this case, although Christ is not with them, he saw them in the storm. So it's interesting. We have a couple of things here. First of all, Jesus sent them to go across by themselves. We assume Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew that this storm was coming, and yet he sends them into it. And then he sees them in the storm. It's almost as if Jesus is up to something here. Remember last week in the feeding of the 5,000 and how Jesus asked Philip, what should we do about feeding these people? And we noted that even the text tells us that Jesus knew exactly what he was planning to do. But he asked the question in order to give the disciples spiritual insight, spiritual understanding to bring them along, to help them to learn, to open their eyes to the spiritual realities around them and who he is. So that they could understand my two-part outline, 
the problem and the what? The solution. And the solution is? Okay, some of you are listening. Listen, Jesus is pretty much always a safe answer, okay? <laughs> you know, Jesus, church, and the Bible. Those are like three good Sunday school answers. You'll get like 90% of things in Sunday school right if you say those three things, all right? Jesus is the solution. And Christ is looking now on the Sea of Galilee, Galilee to see if they learned anything from this miraculous provision that he made the day before. And again, Christ is teaching. He's demonstrating essential truths for them. So Jesus sees them straining at the oars, and he comes to them. They're now about three and a half miles out, and they see a figure coming toward them on the water. Now again, set the picture uh, away with, you know, the... Uh, the most recent coloring page of Jesus walking on the water or, you know, the Bible story, you know, everything's so beautiful and picturesque. It's dark. It's the middle of the night in a storm. And now the disciples see what they think is a ghost coming at them on the water and they're freaking out. And it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about this this week. We keep talking about how Jesus is trying to get them to Stop thinking in an earthly way. Think spiritual thoughts. Well, now they've gone to spiritism, right? Now they've, they've gone you know, beyond spiritual thoughts to they think a ghost is, is coming at them. And, and it says, uh, Mark says, they cried out. And the idea is a screech, right? Kittle says, uh, the word cried out there is uh, raising a cry from the depth of the throat. So I imagine this is not the most manly sound that has ever come out of the disciples on this boat, right? I'm sure later on they're like, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid. You were afraid. I wasn't afraid. I'm like, dude, did you hear what the sound that came out of you? One commentator says the disciples thought they were headed to Davy Jones' locker. We know even from John's gospel that the disciples are afraid because Jesus says, do not be afraid. Or maybe better translated, stop being afraid. This was a fear of something supernatural, something that they didn't recognize. They didn't understand immediately that this was Jesus. And the Gospels, you know, as we kind of take them together, it gives us this sense of fear that turned to awe when Jesus identified himself. And it's interesting to read all of the accounts of this passage because it, you just see this kind of mixture of response in the disciples. There's confusion and doubt and worship, and it's all just kind of jumbled together. But here in John... Christ says, it is I. And the response is, uh, in the NASB, they're willing, but ESV says they're glad to take him into the boat. Happy to have Jesus in the boat to take care of the storm. Matthew 14 tells us that in between the, the recognition of Christ, recognizing who he is and, and the getting in the boat, there's a little incident with Peter you may have heard of. And we won't exhaust that this morning, as it's not in the Gospel of John, but it's uh, an incredible tale, right? This is uh, Peter's you know, greatest moment of glory, followed by an absolutely humiliating kind of moment of shame, right? I always liken it to uh, Matt McGrew in fifth grade, stealing the basketball midcourt and heading toward the wrong basket. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't shoot. I didn't make, I didn't make a basket. I didn't miss either. That would be even worse if you shot on the wrong basket and missed, right? But it's like this moment of like, this is amazing. Look at Peter. Oh, my goodness. Oh, uh-oh, he's down. He's down. He's gone. That didn't last very long. Of course, each gospel gives different details, and John is limiting his material here, which he told us he was from the beginning. 
And so in this statement where Christ says, it is I, you have this simple yet profound statement that Christ in his glory, Christ in his power, Christ in his sovereignty is there at that moment. In the darkness, amidst the crashing waves, miles out to sea, Christ comes to his disciples. And it just serves to remind us that, and to remind the disciples that Christ can be there for them in any situation. And the walking on water, again, demonstrates his power over natural forces, just like the loaves and the fishes did. And this is another step in the disciples' spiritual growth. Christ leads them into this situation, and he leads them through it. And J. Vernon McGee says, Jesus came to them in the storm, and that is the time he comes to his own today. He makes himself more real to us in a time of trouble and sorrow. I don't know why he waits until midnight, until the waves are rolling, but perhaps that is the only time we will listen to him. When the storms of life are beating upon our little bark, our hearts are ready for his presence. So we see Christ at work here, and, and actually in this story, it's really more than just the fifth miracle, because there are several miracles wrapped up into this miracle. First, Jesus walks on water, and so does Peter, for a bit. And then Jesus calms the storm again. And then we see in the text that the boat is instantaneously at the, at the other shore. I think this is kind of the overlooked miracle in the passage. This is incredible. I mean, what in the world? This is something they're going to be talking about for a long time. This is like the first speedboat. I mean, they're, they get Jesus in the boat, and then they're just magically at shore, magically where, where they want to go. And uh, the disciples wrote a song about this. It's uh, called uh, Jesus Take the Oar. And uh, it's, no, that's not true. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this as this is kind of what happens. I see this sometimes if you have the app Life360, uh, and then you couple that with teenage boys, you can see this miracle happen sometimes. They leave the house, and you're watching their little car icon, and then suddenly they're at their destination. And then you scroll down a little bit, and you look at the speeds at which they were traveling. And then you text them, let's talk. <laughs> See me. That was where I always got that on the teacher's paper. See me. Oh, no. What does that mean, right? But, I mean, this is, this is such an incredible thing, and just kind of tossed in there almost as an aside. I really like how Warren Wiersbe ties the the first two things here, well, he basically ties the, the feeding of the last passage and this miracle together. He says, Jesus had led his people into green pastures, and now he brought them into still waters. What a wonderful shepherd he is. So we're seeing again the sovereignty of God in Jesus Christ. The sovereignty of God means that he's chief, he's highest. He's supreme in power. He's higher in position than anyone else. There's, there's no law above God, but there is a law in God. And God's sovereignty refers to his authority. We've been talking about the power of Christ to do these miracles, but his sovereignty is different than his power. His power means that he's able to affect all of his purposes, but his authority, his sovereignty, means that he has the right to affect all of his purposes. And scripture tells us that God is sovereign over nature, that he's sovereign over nations, that he's sovereign even over calamity and sin and evil. 
And as we're going to see as we go on in John chapter 6, especially as we get to John 6, 44, God is sovereign even over salvation. 1 Timothy 6, 15, speaking of God's plan, God's will, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And again, Spurgeon says, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. In the most severe trials, they believe that, the sovereign, that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. And so we see the power and the sovereignty of God on display here in the Sea of Galilee. But Mark tells us that the disciples didn't really grasp all of this, didn't respond particularly well, at least initially. And he says that they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Well, that's concerning, isn't it? They didn't learn to trust Christ's ability to meet their needs. And have you ever noticed that maybe in your life, believer, that you get into a tough spot, you're in the middle of a hardship, a trial, a depression, a rut of some kind, but God is faithful to bring you through. And he, by his grace and through his providence, he sustains you. Maybe he brings his people to kind of lift you up and help you and bear your burdens and through his word he strengthens your heart and he gets you to the other side he gets you through to a place where you never thought you could be but then the next storm comes and the next trial and what do we so often do we immediately go to fret to worry to leaning on our own understanding instead of shunning them we embrace our anxious thoughts and sometimes it's almost as if we didn't learn anything from the trial that came before, from the provision of God, from God's help and, and blessing time after time after time before. Not to mention all of the times in God's word that we see his provision and faithfulness to his people. I've quoted Spurgeon a couple of times this morning. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite old dead guys. I don't know if you know, but old dead guys have the best theology, okay? Spurgeon is a, a lyrical preacher from the 1800s. He's known as the Prince of Preachers, and he enjoyed wild popularity in his own day, just as he does today. But he also came under grave attacks for his own doctrinal fortitude, discernment, his, his boldness. He had bouts of depression. He had incredible uh, problems with health, gout, and, and all sorts of other things. And Spurgeon was a man of, of many words, very widely published. But some people don't know uh, of what I consider to be his most enjoyable publications, and that is when he wrote under the not-so-well-disguised pseudonym John Plowman. And John Plowman was kind of Spurgeon's alter ego, a wise old country farm worker. And Spurgeon pens a number of humorous articles on different topics in his monthly sword and trowel. And I think this kind of character of John Plowman gave this minister a little freedom from the decorum that was expected to maybe speak even more plainly than he normally did if he needed that. 
John Plowman's articles, or talks rather, include articles on uh, the idol, religious grumblers, one article entitled, Things Not Worth Trying, and another which I'm sure you would love entitled, Men With Two Faces. All of this to say that one of Plowman's articles is entitled, Men Who Are Down. I thought it would be instructive for us to hear a little bit of this as we just consider the storms of life, the trials and hardships, and the importance of trusting in our God's care and control. He writes, Down men, however, must not despair. For God is yet alive, and he is the friend of the friendless. If there be no one else found to hold out a hand to him who has fallen, the Lord's hand shall not fail to bring deliverance to those who trust him. A good man may be put in the fire, but he cannot be burned. His hope may be drenched, but not drowned. He plucks up courage, sets a stout heart to a stiff hill, and gets over rough ground where others lie down and die. While there's life, there's hope. Therefore, my friend, if you've tumbled off the back of prosperity, John Plowman bids you not to lie in the ditch, but up with you and try again. Jonah went to the bottom of the sea, but he got to shore again all the better for his watery journey. Let it never be forgotten that when a man is down, he has a grand opportunity for trusting God. A false faith can only float in smooth water. But true faith, like a lifeboat, is at home in storms. If our religion does not bear us up in time of trial, what is the use of it? If we cannot believe God when our circumstances appear to be against us, we do not believe in him at all. And so I'll just ask you this morning, what seems bigger to you today? The storms of your life or the power of God? How can a meditation on this passage, on Christ's power, on Christ's sovereignty, on his deliverance, on his care and his presence for his people, how can a meditation on this change how you view your circumstances? Well, after these first two miracles in chapter 6, the the feeding and the walking on water and delivering the disciples, Jesus begins to speak. And he speaks first in chapter 6, verses 22 to 40, to the multitude in general, to all the people. And then in verses 41 to 59, he speaks specifically to the Jews who question him. And then in verses 60 to 66, he speaks to the disciples. And finally, in verses 67 to 71, he speaks directly to the twelve. And this entire discussion is framed by the feeding of the 5,000. Because Jesus is going to show them that he's not just offering bread, he's offering the bread of life. And what we really want to make sure in the next couple of weeks that we grasp, that we really understand and take hold of, is what that means. What is Christ claiming when he talks about being the bread of life, what is the bread of life come down from God, come down from heaven for us? Look first at verses 22 to 25. 
The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So the next day, the people, right, they have no idea about what's been happening in the middle of the night. They don't know about Jesus walking on the water and the the storm on the sea and, and the deliverance of the disciples and all of this, right? But they know that something strange is going on because there had only been one boat the day before and the 12 disciples left in it, but Jesus didn't go with them and they knew that. But now they can't find Jesus. So where is Jesus? Where did Jesus go? They don't know. And so when they can get boats, they follow the the route that the disciples took, and they sail across the lake looking for him. And they're surprised to see Jesus because they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? I think it would have been a better question to ask, how did you get here, right? Because that's the story, is how he got there. And at any rate, it it seems like the miracle that Christ had just done was for the disciples, because Jesus doesn't answer that question directly. This is a, a, a miracle that was just for them at that point. But he does answer them. He says in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do? so that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus answers their question in this way because he realized that they're not seeking him because of who he is, but because of what he can do for them. Again, because of the food that he gave them, right? Ladies, this is kind of like your husband, okay? This this crowd is kind of like your husband who magically shows up when he smells the food right? You know, he's been in the basement, in the man cave, in the den, whatever, the whole time. All of a sudden, he smells brownies, and he just appears, like, out of nowhere. Oh, what are you, what's going on? What are you cooking? What are you doing, right? Oh, okay, now you're interested, right? And this is kind of how the, the, this, this crowd is. They'd seen Christ perform a mighty miracle the day before. They should have been convinced that he's the creator, that he's the Messiah, but instead, they're just really interested in food and having their hunger satisfied. It kind of, just the, the, the materialism of it, the, the following for what you can get from Christ in a material sense, um, reminds me of the way some churches operate. I have a, a pastor friend who's a pastor in a, in a large city, and there's a mega church down the street and is very concerned about continuing to be a mega church. And so they use all kinds of marketing gimmicks and schemes and all sorts of things to get people to, to come into the church. More, more bodies in seats, right? One of the things they did years ago was they taped $100 bills under certain seats in the auditorium. And so I thought, let's try this this way. If you look under your seat, <laughs> just checking to see who's looking. Mark's worried about the budget. <laughs> This, uh, 
But this idea of kind of drawing people in and people, you know, only coming for what they can get out of it. And that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus doesn't find the attention of the multitude particularly flattering, I don't think, because he discerned their motives, but he still takes the opportunity to teach. Christ is working here to to correct their wrong views. And in verse 26, he calls out their materialistic attitude, and then he turns them again to the spiritual view. He tells them that the Son of Man will give you food which endures to eternal life. He's talking to them not about regular food that grows old and moldy and inedible. He's talking about spiritual rebirth, newness of life, spiritual life, eternal life. And this is just like the conversation with the woman at the well, isn't it? Remember living water? That Christ said makes it so you never thirst again. And then he says it becomes something inside of you that's like a well of water springing up to eternal life. But this crowd has no real grasp of who Christ is at this point. Consider the, the path they've taken in their thinking of Christ. They went from, think, from, from kind of seeing Christ as universal health care to you know, perpetual caterer to forced political king and now back to we're just looking for food. And what I think when I, when I think of all of that and when I think of all of the responses I'm just constantly reminded that, isn't Jesus patient? How incredibly patient he is as a teacher, as a man. And in verse 28, it seems that they, the the, the crowd, immediately defaults to works, like a a works-based salvation. They key in on the word work that Jesus used, and they go straight to self-sufficiency. What can we do to be right with God? They heard Jesus say that God had a requirement for them, and so they want to know, what is it so we can please God and get eternal life through our good works? We know that this is so far from what Scripture says. Scripture says that it's impossible because we're dead and only God can make us alive, and we're blind and only God can give us sight. And we're sinful and only God can forgive us and we're lost and only God can save us and we're helpless and only God can change us. We have no ability in and of ourselves to work our way to God or earn our way to God or or save up enough credits with God to cancel out or, or outweigh our sin. And this is what sets biblical Christianity, biblical, a true message of salvation and gospel apart from nearly every other world religion. That is that it's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus does and who he is. And so Jesus answers them and says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And here we have that word believe again, over and over and over in the Gospel of John, a hundred times. Believe, 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 believe. It's not about works. It's not about earning your way. It's about believing. And Jesus is pointing them to the one that God has sent, to the solution to man's problem, Jesus Christ. Just like he told the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God, and this work 
that men need to do, it's really not a work at all. It's simply to believe. And Homer can't, in this passage, describes it this way. The work of God was to provide full salvation by the merits of his son and to offer this finished work of God to men freely. Man's faith is not a work in the sense that it implies effort that achieves some earned result. Rather, it is simply man's response to the work that God has performed through Christ, his unique and divine son. And so again, Christ is calling the multitude. He's calling the crowd. We are calling you from the word of God to believe. Verses 30 to 34, they said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. I love it when they quote the Bible at Jesus. So patient. (laughs) Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So they're pretty messed up. All right, they're, they're making demands of Jesus, first of all, here in this section. Give us a miracle. What? They just experienced a miracle, a gigantic, miraculous picnic the day before with Jesus creating food out of thin air. And they're just clamoring for more, more miracles. They just experienced the feeding of the 15,000. And not only are they acting like it didn't happen, but really they're, they're minimizing it. They're minimizing Jesus' miracle and comparing it with Moses and the manna. So they're basically saying, like, uh, look, uh, Jesus, Moses provided manna for 40 years, and you fed us yesterday. you got a lot of catching up to do. And by the way, Moses brought his bread out of heaven. You know, I mean, you got the little boys, you know, lunch, and you did, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. But Moses was bringing bread out of heaven every day for 40 years. And they're quoting here Psalm 78, 24. And what does Christ tell them? Again, his teaching is corrective. It's true that Moses was God's agent, but it's God who orchestrated the deliverance from Egypt, the time in the wilderness, the leading, the sustaining of the people of God. They might be giving Moses a little too much credit here. And Jesus is telling them that as miraculous as manna was, it's nothing compared to the true bread out of heaven. Manna was perishable. It sustained the the physical person. It, It wore out. The bread of God, the bread of heaven, gives spiritual life, not physical life. In verse 34, they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So again, the crowd not getting that Christ is describing himself, exactly like the woman at the well didn't initially understand. They, they asked for this better food. They want a continual supply. And we're going to see Jesus' response next week. But understand that what we're seeing here ultimately is a rejection of who Christ is. We have people who have seen Christ declare sins forgiven, 
perform miracles, exercise power over demons, teach with authority, live a sinless life, but they haven't embraced him. And just as John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38 says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And again, as it is every week, the question is, have you believed the report? of the word of God about Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection provided freely for you. And friends, if you do know Christ, if you're, if you're a believer today, have you believed the report of the word of God about Jesus Christ as it relates to the things that are besetting you? the sin that's grabbed hold of you, the, the hardship, the struggle, the, the trial that you're in? Do you see Jesus Christ as his word presents him to us this morning as this great, powerful, sovereign Savior who loves and cares and is present for his people? Let's grab hold of these truths. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to learn about it and see and read of your son, we constantly say, what a man. What a God-man who loves and cares and provides for us. And Father, we pray that we would live each day in light of that, that we would live lives of thankfulness and praise and faithful dependence on you and we thank you for the way that you provide for us and the way that you patiently teach us in your word it's in your name we pray amen